fascinating facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Wonderful Wednesday, and it truly is. Today It's June the 21st on The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Here's the phone number to call, 888-914-9149. You know that this show is about faith, facts, and fun. Heavy emphasis on the fun today. In fact, I've got a story that I am tempted to do now, but if I do it right now, it's just going to take over the whole show. The phone lines won't stop ringing, and we might not even get to talk about uh, this explosive story, and I and I truly do mean this. You'll see what I'm talking about in just a second. Today's saint, Saint Aloysius Gonzaga, one of the coolest saints in the history of the church, really incredible life. I've got just a fun story about him that you probably haven't heard before, uh, which I'll share in just a second. And then we will talk about my generation, talking about my generation, Generation X. Yep, I'm a proud charter member and. Uh, I can't wait to share this with you. It, you're going to laugh. You might even shed a tear. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, you probably are going to want to call in. So here's the number, 888 Can't wait for that. So please hang on. But I got to tell you this, first of all. Uh, my friend Sean McAfee has written a nice piece uh, for the National Catholic Register about an incident in the life of young Aloysius Gonzaga, who became, of course, Saint Aloysius Gonzaga, died at the age of only 23 years old. But he's an incredible saint for our times. And most of us have heard about at least Gonzaga University in Spokane, Washington, right? And uh, their famous basketball team, right? The Gonzaga Bulldogs. And uh, they're always so prominent in the NCAA tournament. But uh, yeah, it's yeah, Patrick Alex, I mentioned. Yeah, it's a feast day. Yeah, in case I didn't make that clear. It is, in fact, the feast day of St. Aloysius Gonzaga today, which is why we're talking about him, obviously. Uh, also, Father Robert Spitzer, the great, great Father Robert Spitzer, SJ, who is a great friend of Relevant Radio, too. He's very frequently on this network. Uh, one of the guys I admire most, I mean, incredible uh, intellect and man of faith. Uh, he was the president of Gonzaga University for many, many years. But that school, of course, is named for St. Aloysius Gonzaga. And he had, a, he had a pretty interesting life that really speaks to our age and the problems of our age and, and how to deal with them. He was actually, he grew up as part of the elite class of society. In fact, uh, his parents were super rich, super powerful. Um, his his father, Ferrante, uh, was a marquis. Yes, that's right. And, and sometimes it's pronounced marquise, but uh, it's spelled M-A-R-Q-U-I-S. But a marquis, of course, is a nobleman. And he was a Spanish nobleman. And he was also um, big time in the Spanish army. So at, at that point, the Spanish army was off conquering lands, and they were kind of occupying the northeastern part of Italy. He was gone from home a lot. He was, Aloysius's dad was, was off and out with the army, fighting battles, and, and that was kind of part of the deal, like the arm, being involved in the army and being involved in the elite of society was, was kind of uh, of a piece at that time. And this is, by the way, back in the 1500s. Aloysius Gonzaga was born in 1568, died again, only 23 years later, in 1591. Now, he had a nickname. I didn't know this, but Aloysius Gonzaga, his nickname as a kid was Luigi. Okay, so uh, did he play Super Mario Brothers? No, he did not. But uh, he was doing other things with his time, um, and he was definitely into games, as we'll see. Um, so 
Aloysius's dad, Ferrante, basically wanted him to become, to follow in his footsteps, to become a marquis, to, to become one of the nobility, to get involved with the army and hang out with the 1%, if you will. And so he said, when, when you're six years old, he said to his mom, listen, I'm going to take the boy with me on one of my military campaigns. And Aloysius's mother, whose name was Martha, said, you know what, I don't think this is a good idea, Ferrante. I, I do not think you should take little Aloysius to the battlefield. You know, it's not a good... No, 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 I'm not going to throw him, out, throw him out on the front lines, obviously, but he needs to see how these things work, and he's going to love it. And she's like, I, I don't really want him getting involved with this. I want him to become a priest, maybe become a religious, maybe join the Jesuits one day. I don't like this, but, you know, if you say so, all right, go ahead and do it. So that's that's what he did. And little Luigi was super excited to go and hang out with dad and all his friends and all the soldiers. And in fact, uh, according to Sean McAfee, his dad on this special occasion actually gave him a toy gun. Now this was not a water gun. This is not a pop gun. This is not the kind of toy gun that you might've used as a kid. This was in fact, pretty, pretty dangerous in the wrong hands. It was kind of like a cross between a BB gun and a hand cannon. And it actually kind of used real, beads which are kind of like bb's and gunpowder and his father told him look you can only use this if someone is supervising you yep okay dad got it and of course the first thing he did was completely disobey the order from his dad you're listening to the kale clark show on relevant radio talking about saint aloysius gonzaga so he he took uh little aloysius uh, his dad took him out to the to the where the soldiers were hanging out where they were encamped and he was hanging out and he was kind of playing with this toy gun and he went out to the barracks, and he sort of set up a, a few bales of hay, and he was going to use that as target practice. But um, remember, his dad said, only use this if someone's supervising you. Well, he didn't. He, he went all out all on his own, grabbed some gunpowder, took way too much, and tried to fire his little quote-unquote quote, toy gun. Well, blammo, he nearly blew his arm off, and uh, he, was, uh, he was hurt quite, quite badly. But he, he was okay. Ultimately, he was okay. But his father, Ferrante, said, I've got to punish you. So he kind of did and said, don't try this again, please. And he said, okay, Dad. And, and then the very next thing he did was not only did he try again, he decided to up the ante considerably. So all the soldiers are asleep. They're in their barracks. Um, his dad, all of his fellow soldiers. Well, in the middle of the night, he decided to fire off an actual cannon, the six-year-old Aloysius Gonzaga. So he, he gets out of bed, dresses himself, gets into the bunker where they keep all the ammunition, and he picks up the heaviest cannonball that his six-year-old body can lift, gets over to a cannon, grabs a pile of gunpowder, and he's got enough for one shot. This is his shot. You know, do not miss your shot, as Hamilton once sang about. So... So he called out, wake up, wake up, prepare for battle. And then he fired the cannon. Boom! You know, we need John Madden here for a sound effect. And all the soldiers woke up. They thought that the enemy had, had somehow penetrated their, their, their defenses that were using their own weapons against them. And they, they quickly threw on their armor. And they found little Luigi, the nickname of young Aloysius Gonzaga. And he was lucky to be alive. Uh, he is. He was concussed. Um, he was lying next to the cannon. The, the recoil from the cannon had hit him right in the chest. I mean, it's a miracle they survived. But not only did he survive, other than a slight concussion, he was 
pretty much okay, uh, otherwise unscathed. And so his dad was really livid at this point. Okay, the the the, the quote unquote toy gun was one thing, but now you fired a cannon. What should I do with you? How should what? I'm going to ground you forever? Well, he wasn't even able to do that because the soldiers thought it was so cool that this little six year old boy did this that they talked him out of punishing him. And so the, the the soldiers just love this kid. And so what a fun, what an incredible story. But believe it or not, God used this to finally get a hold of young Aloysius. And it is said at that point, that was after this event, he, seeing the consternation it called his dad, he made this promise, I will never be disobedient again. In fact, he said, I'm never going to sin again. I'm going to try really hard, going to try my best, God helping me to never sin again. And he was known from that point on as having incredible piety. And again, his parents were very involved with the elite of society. And, and later, as he got older, as he become, became a younger man, he was able to spend some time with King Philip of Spain because his parents were called to court. And there was this big dinner that was taking place uh, in the king's banquet hall. And the king actually made a joke. King Philip actually made a joke because there were all these beautiful women in, in the court of, of King Philip walking around and and young Aloysius, he would not even make eye contact with them. You know, to preserve his purity, he wouldn't even look. Not that they were dressed in any kind of scantily clad manner or anything like that back then, no. But the king was like, wow, he's not even, like, checking out these girls at all. For, no, wow. So, so he kind of was kind of joking about this. Uh, can you believe this guy? At any rate, so he was uh, incredibly pure, and that's one of the things that, that he can teach us in our culture. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute, but... Um, his can his cause for canonization started as pretty much as soon as he died. I mean, his reputation for holiness was such at the age of 23, when he passed away, they, they, they basically started the canonization process. And that was you know, pretty apropos considering he, he fired off that cannon. He, he really was the church's only canonized saint in a certain sense. That's a terrible pun. I know, please don't write in. Please don't complain to Father Rocky. I know, that's was, that was probably the worst one I've ever done, but we uh, the show must go on. Okay, so now that you've done groaning, let me, let me tell you a couple other things about St. Aloysius Gonzaga that you're, that you're really going to uh, appreciate. There's a very famous painting, and you can, you can look this up. I was, I was um, scouring for this online. It, it's a painting by an artist named Guercino. And uh, <laughs> Guercino is kind of a nickname, uh, apparently it means cross-eyed. He, he had some vision problems, but uh, he Guercino was born the year that Aloysius Gonzaga died, 1591. And he, and he had this incredible painting called The Vocation of St. Aloysius Gonzaga, which he painted in, in the year 1650 or thereabouts. And it's, it's an incredible painting. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. You don't have to actually have this in front of you to, to get what I'm going to say about this. But let me just, after this whole incident with the cannon and... And all that stuff that happened, his father wanting him to be a soldier. Um, he went to the to the Medici court, you know, King Philip, all all that sort of stuff. He he, Saint Aloysius was kind of sick at that point. He had some kidney issues, and so he was kind of laid up in bed. And he started reading the lives of the saints. It's almost the same thing that happened to Saint Ignatius Loyola, who founded the Jesuits. When he he was supposed to be a soldier too, don't forget, and he nearly blew his leg off with a cannon. And, and he's convalescing in bed, and he starts reading the lives of the saints, and he starts reading The Imitation of Christ, I believe. And, and um, he's just transfixed by this. 
And that's kind of what happened to St. Aloysius. He started reading the lives of the saints and started thinking about, man, I really got to dedicate my life to God. But little did, did his parents know, when he was only nine years old, he apparently made a vow of celibacy, and he didn't really tell anybody about it. He just said, at nine years old, I want to dedicate myself to God in that way. And that's why, one of the reasons why he wasn't checking out uh, all the beautiful girls at King's, King Philip's court. And it's possible, and according to uh, John Grundelsky, um, who wrote, also wrote a piece about um, uh, St. Aloysius today for the Register, and uh, uh, he's actually the, the former associate dean of the School of Theology at Seton Hall, John Grundelsky. Grundelsky says that his parents probably weren't that religious. They're probably nominal Catholics, Gonzaga's parents, because he was 12 years old before he got his first communion. Usually you know, it happens a few years earlier than that, but... He finally got around to it, so he made his first communion when he was 12. Think about that. That was only 11 years before he died. And you know who gave him his first communion? Another saint, St. Robert Bellarmine, who at the time, Cardinal Robert Bellarmine. And when he, when he gave um, the future St. Aloysius Gonzaga his first communion at the age of 12, he's like, you know, there's something different about this guy. I can't put my finger on it, but... But I think God has plans for this guy. So he tried to sort of help him and discern what his vocation might be. And Aloysius was thinking about joining the Capuchins. He was thinking about joining another order called the Barnabites. Um, and he didn't go for it. Um, he eventually joined the Jesuits. And, and when he was, um, and this partially took place because when his parents went back at, at the call of the Holy Roman Emperor to, to go back to Spain, go serve the court, he was 13 at the time. He became a page in the court of St. Philip, uh, sorry, King Philip. And that's when he started meeting some Jesuits, and, and he started thinking about, man, maybe this is for me. And his mother was like, yeah, do it, because remember, she wanted him to, to join a religious order, but his father was like, no, no, he's got to be part of the elite, can't do it. Um, and it was tough for Aloysius, because not only did he need his father's permission to join the Jesuits, but he also had to get the permission of the Holy Roman Emperor because he was like his dad's boss. And he actually got it. He got, he got permission in the year 1585, and he went to Rome and began training with the Jesuits. His parents, his family was like, why don't you just become a diocesan bishop, and then you can become a diocesan priest, and then you can become a bishop, man. It's a great career track. No, 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 that's not what it's about. It's, it's about service. And, and so he said, no, the Jesuits are for me. And he took his first vows in the year 1587. But then there was a plague, and this is this. He never did make it to ordination because uh, a terrible plague struck the city of Rome in the year 1591. And young Aloysius volunteered to work at a hospital. The Jesuits had set up a hospital, and he tried to help as much as he could. And back then, obviously, there were no N95 masks, right? And and I don't want to get into whether they work or don't, but it's just a little joke. But the bottom line is, he had no protection. From the plague and he still tried to serve the sick as best he could so he eventually caught it he got sick and he got better and then he got sick again but this time it was for keeps and he never never did recover and in the year 1590 the year before he died he had two visions two supernatural visions and one of them the archangel gabriel came to saint aloysius and essentially told him you're going to die within the year and then he had another vision that he was going to die during the octave of Corpus Christi, which is, we're just coming out of this now. And that is, in fact, what actually happened to him. So he was buried in Rome, but they took his skull 
eventually to his hometown in Spain, and it's still there. It's venerated as a relic, of course. And and devotion to St. Aloysius, people knowing his sanctity, it was almost like a Sancto Subito situation. This guy needs to be canonized now. And so very, very quickly at that time, it was like light speed in, in, that, in the 17th century. He was beatified in 1621, only 30 years after he died. His canonization happened in 1726. And by the way, he was canonized, according to Grindelsky. I didn't know this, but he was canonized together with another young saint, the 17-year-old Jesuit novice, St. Stanislav Koska. Okay, so Grindelsky says, why is he a big deal for our time, St. Aloysius Gonzaga? And it's kind of cool that this university, Gonzaga, in Spokane, Washington, is named after him because it deals with young people at a crossroads in their life. And and they, they kind of need the what, what Aloysius Gonzaga exemplified to them. Because, obviously, worldly success was at his fingertips. Not only success, but also succession, if you will, right? There's that famous HBO show, Succession, about this wealthy business family, this tycoon and his kids and all the fights they have. A very popular show. But this is what a lot of people in our culture aspire to, that kind of worldly wealth and that kind of power. And he had that all at his fingertips. He could have been worldly wise. He could have advanced in the court. He could have been a marquee. He could have had his own mansion, his own yacht, whatever at the time. But as Grandowski says, would we be talking about this guy more than 400 years later if that's what he actually did? He'd just be just another rich dude. No. Uh, we're talking about him because... He, he gave his life to Christ. And, and you can be a, a wealthy person. You can be part of the elite and give your life to Christ. Think about Nicodemus. Uh, think about um, uh, St. Joseph of Arimathea, who, who gave his tomb to Jesus. And, and this, he was part of the elite, but he gave his life to Christ. He gave his resources to Christ. The more you have, maybe it's harder to give that up and put it at Christ's disposal. You have the temptation of being like the, the rich young ruler. It never says he's the rich young ruler. It's kind of an amalgam of, of what the gospels say about him. But he was a rich dude who, who didn't want to follow Jesus because he didn't want to give up his stuff. That was, that was what was binding him uh, to the earth, if you will. And so he, he, he gave it up for Christ. He, he wanted to be part of the elite, part of God's elite. That's what he really wanted, to become a, a canonized saint. And that's what he did. And also he's known for his purity. So in, in this painting, uh, this famous painting that I was telling you about that was painted in 1650 by Guercino, whose real name was Giovanni Bar Barbieri, a Baroque painter, came from central Italy. Um, in this oil painting, which you can find easily on the internet, um, you see that with Gonzaga, he's sort of at the altar, he's approaching the altar, he's, he's wearing a, a surplice, but he never actually got ordained in real life. He didn't. He died before that could happen. And there are, and there are these lilies, these white lilies, and that's a symbol of purity. Saint Joseph is often pictured with these white calla lilies, if you will, uh, because of his purity as well. And so that that is really uh, one of the touchstones of his life. And this is a virtue that we need, especially amongst the young. Um, Grandowski says, "Yeah, this month we have Gonzaga. Next month we honor Maria Goretti, the eleven-year-old." Uh, who gave her life. She died um, preserving her purity. We'll talk about her later. People like this, they, they may not make sense to the youth of today, but they, maybe they do because they're, they're drawn to the, the heroism of their example and they, they wanted to preserve their purity. 
And also, just, just kind of like our modern COVID times, St. Aloysius lived in a time of plague. And we're kind of get, we kind of got a small, small taste during these last couple of years of how bad. I mean, th- things on the, uh, the ancient plagues, well, I don't know how ancient they were. They're only a few hundred years ago. They were, they were way worse than, I mean, they would wipe out huge chunks of the population. And there was no recourse at all. Um, and so we, we, we've in recent times forgotten how bad these things can be. The last couple of years have reminded us and he, and he didn't, he didn't try to preserve his own life. He, he didn't try to save himself. He didn't run away and go back to his dad's place. You know, he went to the field hospital uh, as Grindelsky says, and the church is kind of a field hospital for sinners, right? So that, that's really, really important. So in, in this painting, you can see on the floor behind Gonzaga, the young St. Aloysius Gonzaga, there's a crown. In this painting, you can see it at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. And that crown represents the rank of a marquee, the territory that he would have ruling over this. And above him, there are angels in the sky, and they're holding this lasting crown, this wreath that St. Paul says is the crown of the victor who, who makes it to heaven. And so it is really, uh, really a kind of a cool painting and, and, and a very cool saint for our times, St. Aloysius Gonzaga, the saint of today. And, and we all are obviously are. He, called, he had to be a saint in his time, and we have to be a saint in our own times. And, and we are of a certain time or of a certain generation. We're of a certain ilk, and I'm part of the generation that's known as Generation X. And very often people ask, what was it like? What did you do? Before the era of smartphones, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually share with you a slice of life, what it was like for people like me, maybe a lot of people like you who are listening, and I think you're really going to enjoy this. This is coming up right after the break. You're listening to The Kale Clark Show, 888 We'll be right back. Our sponsor, Charity Mobile, where 5% of your monthly plan price goes to Relevant Radio or another pro-life charity of your choice. New customers can mention Relevant Radio to receive a free phone. More information at CharityMobile.com. Never made it as a wise man. I couldn't cut it as a poor man stealing. Tired of living like a blind man. I'm sick of sight without a sense of feeling. And this is how... You remind me This is how Hey, welcome back to the Kale Clark Show. Our DJ of record today is Patrick Alog sitting in for Jim Shaper today, and he, he was he really, 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 really wanted to play Nickelback when I told him that uh, I was talking about Gen X stuff tonight, and uh, there's so much hate for Nickelback. I don't know why. I mean, great sound, and this is how you remind me. Hey, well, I want to remind you, we're all called to be saints. That's that's remind you of what you really are and who you're really called to be. And we talked about St. Aloysius Gonzaga earlier before the break. It's his feast day today. If you missed that, shame on you. But uh, we've got you covered. You can check the podcast uh, after the show. A few minutes after the show, just uh, go to the Relevant Radio app. Download it if you haven't already. And you can check the pod. You can stream it. You can share it with a friend. And also the Faith Explained show and any other shows that we have here, the fine programming that we have all day long 
and all night strong on Relevant Radio. Well, I, I, I promised that I wanted to share a little bit. By the way, Nickelback's Canadian as well. How about that? Um, five cents Canadian. It's not worth as much. But um, anyways, uh, I want to talk to you about it. Now, that was a song that came out in the early 2000s, and, and that's when a lot of people from Generation X... Generation X, if you really don't like it, uh, came of age and we're kind of getting into the workforce. And I came upon this incredible piece about what life was like back then. The Internet was there, but it really wasn't that reliable or, or widespread. Smartphones were not a thing. I'm talking about in the early 2000s when Generation X came of age. And again, Generation X was born between the years 1965 to 1980. So that's you, or even if you're just curious about this, uh, you're definitely going to want to call in. You might laugh at this. You might cry. You might have a lot of questions. Um, and, and I do have a serious point to make about this, but you're going to have to hang tight uh, to figure out what that is. 888-914-9149. So this is an article that uh, was, I came across. It was published on uh, Slate.com, the Slate Magazine website, uh, by this guy named Dan Coyce. And... He's a Gen X guy, apparently, and he was amazed because a lot of his younger co-workers were shocked when he told them, yeah, I did a master's degree while I had a full-time job. And they're like, what? You did what? And he said, yeah, it was easy. What are you talking about? It was easy. Yeah, he said, I worked at a literary agency during the day, and then he got off work at 5 p.m., and he just studied for the rest of the night. He did his, he did his master's degree at night. And this is, again, right after the turn of the millennium. And his coworkers were asking him, well, what would you do whenever you had work emails at night? He said, I didn't get work emails. I barely had the internet in my apartment. So he said the very idea that once work hours were done, nobody could get a hold of you without, you know, there's really virtually very difficult to get a hold of somebody through email. Texting wasn't a thing. Slack didn't exist. And this is all alien, he says, to contemporary young people, the millennial generation, Generation Z. They never let their cell phones leave their hand. And, and partially because they're addicted to them, but also because they're expected to be online and available to work pretty much all day long and all night strong, as I said earlier. And this is, has especially been true since the pandemic. And remote work has essentially... I think fueled the fire of all that sort of stuff. There was a survey that came out that suggested that U.S. workers are logged into their employer's network for 11 hours a day. This was in 2021, 11 hours a day. Before the pandemic, it was only eight hours a day. In the U.K., they did a survey of workers uh, in the U.K. and in the United Kingdom, they found that a majority wanted their employers to restrict work communication to work hours only. So he, he, this guy, uh, Dan Coy said, you know, I, I needed to give my younger coworkers kind of a flavor of what it was like back then. And I'm going to share this little slice with you. So basically he just, he just interviewed a bunch of people who were around at that time who were about, this is the early, in the early 2000s, they were around 27 years old, let's say in the year 2002. So they were kind of just starting their first jobs, kind of getting going. What was it like? What was it like back then in the days of, in the days of old, <laughs> in, around the Y2K scare, if you can remember that. So, so here, here's some recollections. So I'll just read the person's name, 
and what they said about that time. And if you're going to want to, call, you're definitely going to want to call in and comment on this. I know we're going to get some calls here, so grab your spot now. Triple eight nine one four nine one four nine. So this is what happened in the morning. This is the good morning routine. If you're around twenty seven years old in the year two thousand and two. Eric, who uh, works in IT and retail in North Carolina, said, I would wake up as close as possible to the time I had to leave for work. Rebecca, a magazine writer in New York City at the time, said, there were definitely no emails from bosses or internet checks before you went into the office. We didn't even have the internet in our apartment until the year 2004. Dan, who is a literary agency assistant in New York City, He said, it wasn't like there was work I was worried about missing. No one would send you an email at night. Matt, who's in public relations in D.C., he said, I would take the metro in from Arlington, and I would read the newspaper. I would read the post, the front section, and the style section. Then I'd go to the New York Times, and I'd read the front, and I'd read the business section, because sports was in the back of the business section. Jordana, who was a legal assistant in New York City, said, my boss gave me a Palm Pilot as a bonus instead of money. So I rode the subway to work, and I played Dope Wars on my Palm Pilot. I think I only ever use that Palm Pilot to play Dope Wars. Okay, I've never heard of this, but I I asked my wife about this, and she had a Palm Pilot. And she said, oh, yeah, I totally remember that. It's a game, and again, not glorifying this at all, but apparently this was a thing back in the day. It was... was (laughs) The, the pretext of the game was, was drug dealing, apparently. I, pff, that was the pretext for the game. I don't know anything about it. Don't at me on this one, okay? So anyway, so that's what, that's what she did. Rebecca said, I rode the subway, and I read a novel, and I listened to my Discman. Remember, remember the Discman? I was like, hey, man, the Walkman, the Walkman is just passe. Now we have the Discman. The, the cool kids had the Discman, the compact Discman. So I was, she says, I was probably listening to the band Wilco. They're a good band good band maybe we should find some wilco music patrick but anyways and matt when i got to my office we'd all sit on bar stools in the kitchen in the office passing back and forth newspapers reading interesting stories out loud it was like social media i guess (laughs) social media before social media all right so that was their kind of the morning routine of a gen xer uh back in the day early 2000s okay so now it's time to work what would the work day look like Sean, who's a recording engineer in Los Angeles, was also interviewed for the piece. Sean said, I do just remember being on the phone a lot. I remember calling a friend at work one time, and he was like, what do you need? And I was like, I just wanted to see what you're up to. And he was like, I'm at work. (laughs) Did you ever do that, call your friends at work? Because back then, that's what you did. Mac said, and Mac is in bank data entry in New York City. Max said, all my friends had my desk phone number, and they would, they would call it. Nicole, who's a public defender, a lawyer working in New York City, said, you would not call someone's cell phone during the workday. Calling someone on their cell phone in that era was kind of like how our parents thought about calling long distance, only if it's very important. <laughs> do, you, do you remember those days? Remember those days? And, and Patrick Alog, you're welcome to, uh, to chime in on this. But yeah, I totally remember that. You never make a long distance phone call. You got to check with your parents. Um, we have to check in with Aunt Judy, but uh, is it really that important? You know, no. Now, it's, it's, now it's we make long distance phone calls all the time on the phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. Even calling you in Canada, uh, Kale, it's fine with me. So. It's fine. Yeah, it's easy. You know, we can we can we can call, and it's it's free. It's I mean, it's it's, it's awesome. 
So here, here's the deal. So Dan said, if you called someone at work on their cell phone, that was a big no-no. Maybe it would ring when you're in a meeting or something. That would be terrible. Cell phones were for emergencies. Matt, you had to pay by the incoming call on your cell phone. Once someone called me and it was the wrong number and everyone laughed. They were like, ah, that just cost you a buck. Remember that? Good times. Good times. And what about, so what would you, what would you be doing also at work? You'd probably be making plans for what you're going to do after work. Sally, who's a law clerk in Baltimore said during the day, you'd organize that night's plans over the phone. Matt, I had a friend who used to call my office and the receptionist would answer. The receptionist would put her through to me and we talk about plans. The receptionist started calling her my girlfriend six months before she actually became my girlfriend. She kind of knew something. Jordana. Our receptionist knew all my friends. She never got their names right, but she got their names wrong the same way each time. Sally, you'd email to make plans. I didn't have a personal email address. You used your work email, which was stupid. Mac, it's really astounding. I I just didn't think along those lines that there's certain things you shouldn't send from your work email. Eric, I was working at a store called Media Play, which had four quadrants of stuff. DVDs, books, music, computer stuff. I worked in the music quadrant. Friends would just come by the store and hang out. There was a regular group that would come in and sit on couches and play Magic the Gathering. Now, what, what is Magic the Gathering? Apparently some sort of a card game. Was, I did not play this, but apparently it's, this is... This it's is sort a, of like Pokemon in a way. Oh, so you know about this. Uh, I know, yeah. I, I grew up going with, uh, with friends who played Magic in the Magic the Gathering in um, the school library. Oh, wow. Okay, so Magic the Gathering is a big deal. I think he even made a ESPN one year. Oh, no kidding. Okay. <laughs> well, so they play Magic the Gathering, and then they would make ad hoc plans like, oh, let's go to IHOP tonight. Sean, he said, most of my time was spent trying to get to FedEx. Now, remember, this guy's a, a producer in, in L.A. Most of my time was trying to was spent trying to get to FedEx before it closed because we had to ship a sound edit across the country. The recording session would end at 5.00. FedEx closed at 5.30. I'd pack up a small hard drive, rush over to FedEx, and there was so much physical stuff being shipped around the country all the time. And that's kind of interesting because I'm currently reading a book right now. Speaking of ESPN, I'm reading a book about the history of ESPN. I don't know if you read this, Patrick. It's called those guys have all the fun by James really Andrew tr- Miller. Yes, that's right. I, I, it took me about three weeks to finish it. When I yeah, read it. It's, it's a long book, and it's basically all anecdotes like this. But it's really entertaining if you're into that. Um, yeah, James Andrew Miller and Tom Shales wrote it. It's such a fun read. But they, they talked about this in the in the early days of ESPN. They they'd uh, they'd send guys out to I don't know uh, get highlights from a college football game, and then they'd have to mail the video cassettes, FedEx it back to Bristol, Connecticut, the headquarters of ESPN the worldwide headquarters, for the 11 p.m. Sports Center. They'd have to get it there on time. And so, obviously, everything's set digitally now. It's so much different, um, but a different time. It wasn't that long ago, but that's the way it was. So, you're listening to the K.O. Clark Show on Relevant Radio, 888-914-9149. And the reason why I'm talking about this, I might as well reveal this right now, because you might be wondering, uh, so why are we talking about Gen X and what it was like during these times, uh, early 2000s, we were coming of age, If you were, say, 27 years old in 2002, what were you doing? Have we kind of lost something? And and there are probably, there are definitely aspects of of this time that maybe we don't want to dredge up, that we don't want to come back. Magic the Gathering might be one of those things, but 
but maybe you'd like, no, I want this to come back. But, but at any rate, what have we lost something about the way that we're living now and the way that we're kind of working now? So here, here's, here's, here's the next part. This is kind of the, um, the end here. What happened when work was over? This is what these guys said in the interview. Jordana, my day ended at 4 p.m. Mac, I left at 5.30 without fail. I worked there for years. I was never asked to stay late once. Rebecca, now remember she worked at a magazine. Once a month, we'd be closing a magazine issue, so we'd stay late and expense dinner and a car service home. Other than that, we'd be out every day by 5.30 or 6 at the latest. Nicole, I never took work home. Sometimes I had a lot to do, so I'd just stay late until it was finished. Dan, I would sometimes stay late to use the good internet at the office. They had DSL. You know, remember that, the old dial-up? That was a terrible manual sound effect, I apologize. But at any rate, uh, those are the days, right? I'm going to stay at the office to use the good internet. Nicole, in this era, I was doing a lot of swing dancing. And there's a a famous gap... (laughs) There's a famous ad for the Gap using swing. People were wearing khakis and they were, um, they were like swing dancing. And there was this big craze for swing dancing. My wife was totally into this at the time. She went to swing dancing um, get-togethers all the time. She loved it. So maybe you did too if you were around back in the day. So Nicole says sometimes at a swing dance lesson, or we'd go to Swing Forty Six, which I'm guessing is some sort of a swing dancing club. Dan, I always had improv class or improv practice or an improv show. Rebecca, I would go to street hockey practice or scrimmaging. That was a social event, too. Besides being exercise, everyone dated one another. Sean, we would really just drive to somebody's house and see what they were doing. You and a couple people would be in the car, and you'd be like, let's go by Brian and Mike's place. Matt, either we'd make plans or just go to the same few places. And he lived in D.C. He says, during the week, I'd go to the front page in DuPont or Gigi Flips, or on Thursdays and Fridays, I'd go to Lulu's on M Street, Someone I knew would be there. Sean in L.A., he says, there's only six places you would go and someone would be there. Someone you knew would be there. Uh, Birds, La Poubelle. I don't know what these places are. If you're from L.A., you would know. Across from the Scientology Celebrity Center. (laughs) The Scientology Celebrity Center. It's terrible that that actually exists, but uh, I know it does. And then like four other places, he says. Sally, you had to plan more ahead and hope that it works out. People didn't flake as much, which means they didn't cancel on you as much. There was no option to text someone 10 minutes before you're supposed to meet up because you knew they were waiting for you. Dan, even if you didn't feel like it, you just showed up. If you didn't show up, people would stop inviting you out, and then you would have fun. Or maybe it would stink, but next time it would be fun. Matt, you'd be late or they'd be late, and you just talk to whoever was there. It was a whole skill talking to a person you don't know. Imagine that. How many people can't even do that right now? Can't even start up a conversation with someone they don't know. I find this incredibly true amongst young people, maybe because they're just so used to communicating online, instant instant uh, snap face and insta chat, as Bill Belichick once said. That sounds like such a funny thing to say, but I, just, I did just say it. Um, Nicole. I always carried a book or an issue of The New Yorker with me because in a time before cell phones, no one could call you to tell you they were going to be late. So you had to have something to read. I used to do the same thing, Cal. I Did you? A, I, I used to have a book with me, too. And sometimes I do once in a while. But most yeah. of the time, it's like, well, you can find what you need to read at, on the phone. 
Exactly right. Like I sometimes I bring a book, like if I'm at a car appointment or something like that, but sitting in the garage. But but most of the time I just have a book on my phone anyway. So it's 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 e-reading for sure. But yeah, that, that is a big deal. You always had to bring a book because you just never knew how long you're going to be stuck there. Matt, eventually your friends showed up or they didn't, and you'd think, oh, they must be having a really bad day at work or something, so that they couldn't come out. Nicole. If someone didn't show up, you would sometimes have to call your home voicemail from a payphone and put in your code to see if they left a message for you on your home phone. Does anybody remember doing that? Sally, later on, you'd be like, what happened? And they would have some fake story like, oh, I fell asleep. And you'd be like, whatever. I knew you were probably with your significant other. Mac, there were some nights when friends and I were trying to connect by leaving updates on each other's home voicemail. Mac, we've decided to move from this bar to that bar. Matt, I didn't even have voicemail yet. I think I had an answering machine with a tape in it. Sally, you'd have bar arguments about what was true or not, and you couldn't resolve it immediately because no one could check the internet. It would go on forever, for days. Rebecca, we went to the movies a lot, like as a pack after work. A whole group of us, eight of us, eight or nine of us on a weekday. Who does that now? Eric, you would call the movie theater's number and it would be like a machine that would tell you the show times. At one point, the recording was on a continuous loop. You'd just jump in wherever it was. Mac, movie phone. You'd call movie phone, type in the theater code. It would just list the names of the movies and the show times. But movie phone didn't sell tickets, so you'd have to get someone there early to get the tickets. You had to, if you were really worried the movie would sell out, you'd go to the theater box office at lunchtime. Jordana. We went to the AMC 25 a lot. If you bought a ticket to a movie, that would be on the top floor, and then the movie you paid for was one, the one you needed your dollars for the most, and then you'd take the escalator down one floor, sneak into another movie. I saw Castaway or parts of it a couple of times that way. Now, I, I know a relative who did this one day. I'm not going to say who it was, but uh, where are they? Oh, they went to the movies. They've been there all day. They, they went to like the morning matinee, <laughs> the afternoon show, the early evening, late evening. They're still there. Snaking into movies. I, I Hey, that's that's wrong. Go to confession. Anyways, that was just a different time, wasn't it? And uh, there's, there's a couple other really, really funny things. Um, like one guy said, Mac, I'll, I'll, I got to take a break in a second, but I really want to get your take on this. It was, are we missing something? Did we lose something in the intervening years? 888-914-9149. Mac said that he, he never knew what time it was. He would buy these cheap digital watches and he would lose them. So he would... <laughs> constantly on the on the subway just kind of slightly try to look at people's watches to see what time it was or or going up to a taxi cab uh, hey you know looking looking at the time on the dashboard and then saying oh, I, don't, I don't really want a cab right now just to check the time that's pretty funny so and people would just watch whatever was on uh, one guy said you just get home you'd always get home at the same time and wait for everybody else to get off work and the only thing that was on was seventh heaven didn't even like the show I used to watch that all the time, Seventh Heaven. Jessica Biel was on it, right? And uh, it, was, it, was, uh, it was on at the same time every day. It was always on. You just watched it because that's what was on. Now, obviously, we have choices now. TVs were 300 pounds, as deep as they were wide. Um, and they would just watch shows. Uh, Must-see TV. You remember that Thursday night on NBC? They'd watch, people would watch Friends, and then they would talk through whatever the next show was. And then they'd watch Seinfeld at 9 o'clock, and then they'd talk through whatever the 9.30 show was. Then they watch ER. So it's just, they, they, those are the times. And are we missing something? Do you miss those times? Love your reaction to this. 888 914 9149 is Kale Clark's show on 
Relevant Radio. Be right back. When he gets caught, I won't get up. I won't go to sleep. I'm coming home. I'm coming home. He is Chicago. Our sponsor, Charity Mobile, where 5% of your monthly plan price goes to Relevant Radio or another pro-life charity of your choice. New customers can mention Relevant Radio to receive a free phone. More information at CharityMobile.com. Alvaro Levine for you there, my fellow Canadian. Things do get complicated, don't they? We, we, we have to sometimes answer some complicated questions here on the show. Uh, you're listening to The Kale Clark Show, 888-914-9149. I just gave you in the last segment a little slice of what it was like to be coming of age as a Gen X young person in the early 2000s, what life was like, what work was like. What hanging out with your friends was like after work. And I feel like we've kind of lost something from that time. I don't know if you agree or disagree. 888-914-9149. We also talked about St. Aloysius Gonzaga, a great saint for our time. Uh, died when he was only 23. You don't have to wait until you're advanced in age to be spiritually mature. Let's put it that way. And speaking of young people, we've got 14-year-old Marisol on the line calling from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hi, Marisol. How are you? Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Oh, I'm so glad that you called in. That's that's awesome that you did. What's, what's on your mind today? Well, I was asking a question about how God made... Um, God made, uh, you know, the Earth in seven mm-hmm. days, and including human and but in biology we learned that dinosaurs existed on earth for million four million four millions of years before other species Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but so i don't know yeah how how do we reconcile that that's 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 a great question marisol and and you know i'm so glad that you asked that and just like avril levine said you know it's complicated right and it's not that complicated actually we just got to get get a couple things uh straight uh, in our minds. And speaking of dinosaurs, I'll tell you this, um, Marisol, I took my seven-year-old daughter, Michaela, last time I was in Chicago at the worldwide headquarters of Relevant Radio, I took my daughter, Michaela, to the very famous Field Museum in Chicago, and we saw the intact skeleton of the famous dinosaur known as Sue. That's what they named her, because the the um, the paleontologist that discovered her, her name was Sue, so they just named named the dinosaur after her. Really impressive. Michaela loves dinosaurs, loves all that stuff. I'm sure you do, too. Um, and so how, how do we reconcile this? Okay, dinosaurs living millions of years ago, um, the, the universe being millions of years old. Uh, how do we reconcile that with what the Bible says about creation happening in, in seven days? Okay, so here's how I like to explain it. Now, there are a lot of non-Catholic Christians who do like to say that the world was created in seven literal days, seven literal 24-hour time periods. Now, I would say it's possible. I'm not ruling that out. God can do anything. Um, but I, I don't think that's how it happened. I don't think that's how it happened. One, one of the keys to, to reading the Bible, and I, I talked about this a lot more, Marisol, on another show that I host called The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. We did a whole series on the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis. We called it the Genesis series. I spent a lot of time 
talking about that. So if you want more, just go to the um, uh, Relevant Radio Archives on the Faith Explained show page, and you can check that out. But I'm just going to summarize what I said. So basically, the Bible is not so much a book as a library. It's a collection of books. So you got to know what kind of, just like in school, you, you read poetry, you read literature, you read all kinds of different stuff, history. So you got to know what kind of book you're reading to make sense of it. And when it comes to the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, what makes it kind of tricky is that it's a hybrid book. It, part of Genesis is history. A large chunk of it is history, the history of Father Abraham, the early beginnings of the Jewish people, how God dealt with them, ends up with Joseph in Egypt, an amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, all that stuff. Um, but the first part of the book, the first few, three chapters about the creation of the, of the universe, creation of the world, that is actually poetry. That's not history. And even and if you think I'm, oh, okay, well, how can you say that? Well, Pope Benedict said that. Pope Benedict had a collection of sermons. It was published as a book, and it's called In the Beginning. And he, he gave his preaching about this. So it's a poetic account of how God created the world. It's not meant to be a science textbook. It's not meant to be a minute-by-minute. Uh, minute. <laughs> well, first of all, uh, the person who wrote Genesis was not there when God created the world. Uh, he didn't have a, a, a camcorder set up, you know, to use a, a Gen X term. Uh, he didn't have a smartphone to record it. So this, he's, he's obviously not giving a scientific description of how it happened. But it's a poetic account of how God created the world, the origins of human beings. Um, it really answers the question, why? It answers the question, why? Why are we here? What is the meaning of life? Who is behind creation? That's God. And by the way, the scientists, the faith is not incompatible with science. And, and I want every young, young person listening to know, if you're studying science, there's nothing in science that contradicts the Catholic faith. There's nothing in the Catholic faith that contradicts science. Who created the Big Bang Theory? Not the TV show. Father George Lemaitre, a Catholic priest who was also a scientist, he created what's called the Big Bang Theory of Cosmology. How did the universe get started? Almost every scientist holds to the Big Bang Theory, and it was created by a Catholic priest. He just says that's how God did it. That's how God... So science tells us how things work in God's world. Uh, the creation story in the Bible tells us that God did it. And, and so it's the why, it's who's behind it, what is it all about. And, and, and so later on, Genesis does get into history, but you've you got to understand that. So um, we're kind of up against the clock, Marisol, but I'm so glad that you called in with that question, and you can call back anytime now. You hear okay? So does that help you at all? Yes, thank you so much. Okay, you got it, Marisol. I appreciate the call. Marisol, 14 years old in Albu Albuquerque, New Mexico. Love hearing from students calling in, and love the fact that you took the time to spend with me on this hour of the Kale Clark Show. I wish I had more time, but I am out of time. So if you have questions, comments, you can email me, Kale, C-A-L-E at the faith, uh, sorry, Kale at relevantradio.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. And or call in tomorrow and ask your question. Uh, Tim Reese coming up next, followed by the Family Rosary with Father Rocky. Patrick Aylock produced. Happy birthday to Sebastian, Jim Shaper's son. Jim's out having a birthday party. 12 years old today. God bless you. Take it away, Michaela. Thank you for listening to my daddy.